I'm making them nervous up here. They're like, where is he? Well, we want to dismiss our kids for workshop. Come on, let's make some noise for our children. It's a tradition here at City Life. We love our kids. So we are launching a new series. I think a slide's getting ready to pop up here. So when, uh, when we were running through them, testing them bef before the service and the worship team was wrapping up their practice, Kevin Garcia was coming off the platform and, and he said, Pastor Fred, I just have to tell you, that is the hippest coolest, and then he said a bunch of other words, I'm still trying to figure out what they mean, slide I think that you have ever created. And I said, Pastor Jamie did it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See, because I'm getting ready to turn 47, so those days are, are way behind me, right? So you staff to your weaknesses, that's what I told him. So, so he did, Pastor Jamie did a great job putting together the, the creative part of this series that we're going to be doing together. It's all based out of Matthew chapter 13. We're going to be working through these kingdom parables together. It's going to take us all the way up to Easter. And uh, as I was thinking about the, the launch of this series this week, I, I just had this memory. You know, you have memories of your childhood that, that just come to you. And so, so this one of me was when I was probably early, early elementary school, and uh, my mom was on the phone, and I wanted her to get off the phone. Sometimes in this relationship, right, the child has to become the parent. She had been on the phone for way too long. And so, so I, and we had, in my mom, they, they live in the house that I grew up in. They still have this phone, right, has the retractable cord that comes out of the wall, right? Anybody remember that? I know, it's got the push buttons on it. Every time our kids go to the house, they're like, what is this that's mounted on the wall in the kitchen? So she's on there and talking, and she's been, I don't know for how long she's been on there, but long enough, in my opinion, as an early child. And so I, I, came, I went up to her and said, Mama, I, I, I want you to get off the phone, and you know, I wanted her attention. And so, you know, she, she put, you put your hand over the part, you know, it's, it's, it's shaped like this. I should have brought one for them over here, right? You put your hand over this part, and she says, right, I'm going to be off in just a minute, honey. And so, and so she doesn't get off, right, because as parents, we lie to our children. And so, and, and so I keep going back to her over and over and again, and I notice that her tone is gradually changing, right? It's no longer, honey, I'm just going to be off in a minute, right? So towards the end of me doing this, probably for a good 20 minutes, she's saying, if you ask me to get off of this phone, yeah, right, uh -huh, you know how they do it. They go back and forth. And, and, right, so I'm thinking to myself, you do not want to test me today, right? 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 So I'm thinking to myself, what can I do? You're going to get some insight about me tonight. What can I do to get my mom to get off the phone? Because right? now it's a battle and I'm going to win. Right? And so I'm thinking, it needs to be something that frightens the sanitary side of my mother because her nickname growing up, she was Sanitary Sally. Like, for example, anybody else, right, have a mom like that growing up? And so there were two dish towels in the kitchen. One was for the hands, one was for the dishes. They were at opposite sides of the kitchen. And if you got caught using the wrong one, your life was over. There was no, there was no washing your hands in the kitchen sink unless it had to do with food prep, but you did not wash up in the kitchen seat, right? So, so I'm thinking to myself, it needs to be something that disturbs her, right? Because this is how I thought as a child. And so, so I think to myself, oh, I've got it, right? So I go and I tap my mom on the shoulder and she gives me this look of, I thought I told you not to bother me about the phone again, right? And I said, if you do not get off the phone. Yeah, right? It's, it's called threatening parenting, right? I'm going to pee in the trash can. This is a true story. That's a true story, right? And then, the, and then my mom, she, she didn't talk. Because sometimes as a parent, you're like, ew, ah, ew, right? There's no words that come out. And so I know what she's thinking. He's, he would never do that, right? And so I'm thinking, all right, here we go. So I go into the back bathroom. There's a trash can there, a little small waste basket, right? And I just pull it away from the wall. And I'm thinking, I can hit that. And, and, uh, and sure enough, pee in the trash can. 
pick it up, walk to my mom. Yeah, right? The battle is on, and I will not be denied. And guess what she did? No, she hung up the phone. Yeah, right? I got the spanking of my lifetime. But the whole time I'm thinking to myself, yeah, I just won, right? And then I got another spanking when my dad got home from work, right? Because sometimes your mom says to you, oh, you just wait till your dad gets home, right? And that means you don't get the spanking then, you're going you're gonna to get it then. But sometimes she spanks you and then she says to you, and now you just wait until your dad gets home, right? And so I could hear her telling him the story and I could hear his emotions riding. But you know what, the whole time I'm thinking... This is going to go down again, but I'm going to smile the whole way through because they learned something about me today that I am not a child to be reckoned with, right? I will pee in the trash can, although I never did again. So, all right. So why am I, why am I telling you that story? Why am I telling you that story? Because we're, we're going to be talking about hell tonight. And I'm telling you that story because I grew up in the church, and many of you have grown up in the church, or, or maybe you didn't grow up in the church, but you've been in church service church services before, and the sermons about hell, and they're teaching about hell, it's, it's been a peeing in the trash can kind of experience for you, right? It's, it's they're trying to scare you and manipulate you into a decision. They're trying to control your emotions by telling you a lot of bad things. Now, we're going to have an honest conversation about hell tonight, and there's a lot of bad things that go along with that conversation, but I just, before we get started, I just want you to know, Jesus does not want you to run from something. He wants you to run to someone, and that someone is himself, okay? In, in, in Romans 2.4, Paul writes, it's the goodness of God that leads people to repentance. If, if you make a vow of devotion to Christ because you're running from something, it's not going to last very long, and it's not going to go very deep. But when you have a revelation of who Christ is, and you run towards him, it can last for you forever. But make no mistake, Jesus could not be more clear, especially as we get into some of these parables tonight in Matthew 13. If you do not make a vow of devotion to him, if you don't run to him, there is a consequence that he wants us to understand. So if you've got your Bible, you can turn to Matthew 13. Matthew 13. I'm just going to read this last one. I'm going to start in verse 47. The, the first one is the parable that maybe some of you are, are familiar with. It talks about this idea of a, of a farmer goes out and plants a garden and weeds grow up with the, the good plants. And, and, the, and, the, and the servant comes back and says, should we pull them out? And you can read it for yourself. If you're a note taker, you can write these down. The notes will be online this week. But, but that's where God says, no, we're not. We're, the farmer says, which represents God, we're not going to take the weeds out now. We're going to wait. And they're going to be separated at the end of time. It's interesting, which is why I have 36 and 43 in here. He gives a few parables in this text, and the disciples, they want to know what that one meant. And I think one of the reasons why they wanted to know what that one meant is because the way he ended it, this idea that there is an eternal consequence that's waiting for you, and that, and that piqued their interest because his kingdom is a kingdom of consequence. And so let's pick up in verse 47. It says, again, the kingdom of heaven, this, these are the kingdom parables here in this chapter. We're going to work through all of them together in the series. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a fishing net that was thrown into the water and and caught fish of every kind. And when the net was full, they dragged it up onto the shore, and they sat down and they sorted the good fish into the crates, but threw the bad ones away. That is the way it will be at the end of the world. The angels will come. This is not a parable anymore. Are you with me? He's shifted out of a parable. Now he's shifted into an explanation. He's telling us about what's going to happen. 
the angels will come and separate the wicked people from the righteous, throwing the wicked into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Verse 51 is important to us because just as Jesus asked it then, he's asking it of us tonight. Do you understand all of these things? And our prayer that through this series and in this message tonight that you're going to be able to respond in the affirmative just like Jesus, just like they did to Jesus. Yes, they said we do. Father, as we just dig into your word tonight, we pray that just the truth of your word is not going to cause fear to take root in our heart, but it's going to cause faith to come alive inside of us. Not running from something, but running to someone. Holy Spirit, we want you to have your way with us tonight. We want you to be able to do the work that only you can do, that you would bring a revelation to who Christ is to all of us that would cause all of us to say, I cannot get to him soon enough. In Jesus' name, come on, and everybody said together, amen. All right, let me, let me back up here. Let me, I'm going to back up just one. All right, maybe my clicker's not going to let me do that. There, there was a word at the top there that said universalism. I want to touch on that, and then I want to touch on blasphemy a little bit. U- universalism is something that we don't ascribe to as a church. Universalism believes that, that when Jesus died on the cross, that he died for every human being, that, that it was just a, a blank check that was written for grace and forgiveness to all people, no matter what they do or don't do, whether or not they make a vow of devotion to Christ or not, that when Jesus died on the cross, that he died for the whole world, and everybody's going to end up in heaven together because of what Jesus did. Now, I have a hard time reconciling that belief system to the teachings of Scripture, especially as we work through Matthew 13. And then there's this other word that comes to us. Thank you, the tech people making me look good back there. Thank you. All right. Can you clap for the tech people? They work hard behind the scenes. So I want to just lay a little groundwork, and then we're, we're going to get into 13 things that I think every person needs to know about hell. And, uh, and then when you're on the way home tonight, you can say, that was a hell of a sermon. That was at the City Life Church, right? Yeah, all right, see, all right, all right, all right. This is the only time you're allowed to cuss in church, is tonight, right? What in the hell is he talking about, right? You can just come up with your own. You can come up with your own. All right. All right. So... Blasphemy, there's a lot of confusion about blasphemy because people tend to think of this in a singular sense as a general concept, but the Bible doesn't deal with it in a singular concept. So you've heard people say, you know, what is the sin of blasphemy? Is blasphemy the the only unforgivable sin? And blasphemy is not the unforgivable sin. There's a certain kind of blasphemy that is an unforgivable sin, but then there are certain kinds that are not. Again, we're not going to go to these. These are for the note takers tonight, but Matthew 12, 31, Mark 3, 38 through 39, and Luke 12, 10 are all references in Scripture that use the word blasphemy. Now this was an important word in Jesus' day. 2,000 years ago, the, the culture and the time, there was, there were, there, just like there is today, but we just don't call it this, but, but if you were to slander someone vehemently, like you made it your personal agenda to ruin their reputation, you, you, you just didn't care. You would say whatever it took. You would make it up. You, just, you had no conscience when it came to ruining this person for whatever reason, right? Again, we can all relate to that. Some of us have felt that way towards other people. Other people have treated us that way in Jesus' day. It was called blasphemy. It it was to speak ill of someone to such a degree that you could not get to the place soon enough of ruining their reputation. And so the Bible says, you can read it for yourself in these texts, that blasphemy against Jesus will be forgiven. So we understand that blasphemy as a general rule is not something that's unforgiven. But then Jesus says, but blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, that will never be forgiven. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. Now why, why is that? 
In 1 Corinthians 12, 3, we find this text that Paul writes. So I want you to know that no one speaking by the Spirit of God will curse Jesus. And no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. If you study John 14, 15, and 16, especially this verse here, you begin to realize it's not the only work of the Holy Spirit, but the primary work of the Holy Spirit in the world today is to bring a revelation of who Jesus Christ is to you and to me. And so this idea of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is the only unforgivable sin because it means that you have rejected the revelation of Christ. And at the end of the day, the only difference between those who are going to heaven and those who are going to hell are those people who made a vow of devotion to Christ. What have you done with the revelation that the Holy Spirit has brought to you? That's why it's the only unforgivable sin because it means to reject Christ and he's the way, the truth, and the life and no one comes to the Father but by him. Let me say this too. When we talk about this idea of the revelation of Christ, it talks about no one can call Jesus Lord. That's an important distinction because the devil and all of hell believe the same things about Jesus that we do. They believe that he's the son of God. They believe that he died for the sins of the world. They believe that he rose from the dead and that he's coming. They believe those things. It's not enough to just believe in who he is and what he did. There has to be this moment where you step into a place of devotion. There has to be this moment where you make a vow of devotion to Christ because of the revelation of the beliefs that you now have by the Holy Spirit. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is to reject the Holy Spirit's revelation of Jesus to you. It's a kingdom of consequence. We're going to talk about it a little bit tonight, but all of us are coming to a place of judgment at the end. The book of Revelation, this should be a sermon series that we do, all the different judgments that Revelation talks about. But one is the, the judgment that, that's really just one question. What did you do with the revelation of Christ that was given to you? And we can say, well, I didn't want to be associated with these people, or I understood you to be this, and you weren't right, right, and, 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 and God's going to say, no, 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 we're not talking about that right now. What did you do with the revelation of Jesus that the Holy Spirit gave to you? That's it. There's just one judgment, and, and, and the answer to that one question is going to determine heaven or hell. The Bible has a serious conversation with us about hell, and I love this text in Luke 16. Luke 16. Some people call it a parable. I don't think that it's a parable because it is the only time in Scripture where the people in the parable are given names. Every other time that Jesus ever gives a parable, there are no names that are given. There might be genders, there might be, 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 be uh, 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 vocations, but, but there's, there's nothing personal about this one. This one... I don't think it's a parable. I think Jesus is telling us a story of history. There was a certain rich man who was splendidly clothed in purple and fine linen who lived each day in luxury. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus who was covered with sores. As Lazarus lay there longing for scraps from the rich man's table, the dogs would come and lick his open sores. And finally the poor man died and was carried by angels to be with Abraham now the rich man also died, and he was buried, and his soul went to the place of the dead. And there in torment he saw Abraham in the far distance with Lazarus at his side. The rich man shouted, Father Abraham, have some pity. Send Lazarus over here to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I am in anguish in these flames. But Abraham said to him, Son, remember that during your lifetime you had everything that you wanted, and Lazarus had nothing. So now he is here being comforted, and you 
are in anguish. And besides, there is a great chasm separating us, and no one can cross over to you from here, and no one can cross over to us from there. Then the rich man said, Please, Father Abraham, at least send him to my father's home, for I have five brothers, and I want him to warn them so they don't end up in this place of torment. But Abraham said, Moses and the prophets have warned them. Your brothers can't read what they wrote. The rich man replied, no, Father Abraham, but if if someone is sent to them from the dead, then they will repent of their sins and turn to God. And listen to what Abraham says. But Abraham said, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, then they won't listen even if someone rises from the dead. It's a sobering conversation, isn't it? You and I, when we get to that place of judgment, will be without any excuse. We will not be able to say to God, you did not do enough for me. He gives all of us everything that we could ever need to come to a place of devotion to Christ. What he gives to you might be different from what he gives to someone else. Some of you here tonight, you might be saying, well, if he did for me what he did for them, I would have made that vow of devotion. God says, no, 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 I've given you everything that you need to surrender your heart. What have you done with the revelation of Christ that I've given to you. So when you read in the Bible, you find four terms. We love words here at City Life Church because the Bible is instructive and the words that are in there teach us things. And so there are four words for hell. Most of our Bibles only ever say hell in the Old and the New Testament, but there are four distinct words that they were written in the original language. The first three are the Greek and the last one's Hebrew, and you only find Sheol written in the Old Testament. And it's just around 66 times that you find it written. Hades is in the New Testament 12 times. Gehenna is 10. Tartarus is only one. We're going to talk about that. That's instructive to me because sometimes you bring emphasis to something by way of volume and then there are other times that you bring emphasis to something through scarcity. Gehenna is a big one for us because in Jesus' day that was a real place. There was a place outside of Jerusalem that waste was disposed of. It was a dump. It was, a, it was an ancient dump and they burned it. So there was a continual fire from all of the waste that was burning there. It was in the Valley of Hinnon. And so when Jesus talked about Gehenna, it was referencing this place that was a constant burning flame that was so hot you couldn't even get close to it because Jesus wanted them to understand, hey, there is something in this world that I can point to 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 help you understand what this thing in eternity is going to be waiting for some people. It's called Gehenna. Now we're going to look at each one of these, each one of these. I got four verses for Hades, Gehenna, and Sheol, and then one for Tartarus. And each one of them together gives us these 13 things that every person needs to know about hell. All right, you ready? All right. That was just my introduction. I haven't preached all month. You're in trouble. No, I'm just kidding. The hell of Gehenna. The hell of Gehenna. I want to start with this one. The hell of Gehenna. So Luke 12, verse 5. Luke 12, verse 5 says, But I tell you whom to fear. Fear God. Who has the power to kill you and to throw you into Gehenna. Your Bible might say hell, but in the Greek, in the original language it was written, it says throw you into Gehenna. Yes, he is the one to fear. This one teaches us about this idea of judgment, which we've already talked a little bit about tonight, that there is going to come a moment in all of our lives after we die where we have to stand before God, and there's lots of different kinds of judgments that Revelation talks about, but this one is that we have to give uh, an account for what we did with the revelation that God brought to us for who Christ is. And that decision, what you did with who you believe Jesus to be, whether or not you made a vow of devotion to him or didn't make a vow of devotion to him. The Bible talks about something called the Lamb's Book of Life, and whether or not your name is written in there. And the only way your name gets written in there is if you make a vow of devotion to Christ. There is a judgment that there is no person that's getting a pass. 
There's not one person that doesn't have to stand in that line. There's not one person that, that God's going to say, you, you, can, you don't have to stand in this judgment. Every person, the Bible says, who's ever lived is going to stand in that place of judgment. Mark 9.43. Mark 9.43. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Now, we know he's not talking about your little hand. He's talking about things that you value so much, to the place of idolatry, that you embrace them at the expense of Christ. That you say, I would rather reject Christ so I could have these things. Because how many of you know that when you make a vow of devotion to Christ, he does come in as Lord? He comes in and he has some things about how you need to change, some things that he wants you to stop doing, things that you need to start doing. And it could be because of you understand this thing about Christ that you're going to say, I'm not going to make a vow of devotion to him because I don't want to submit to the changes that he's going to demand of me. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to enter eternal life with only one hand than go into unquenchable fires of Gehenna with two hands. It talks about a place of suffering. We don't believe in annihilism. This is another false teaching that's in the church today. Universalism, it's a false doctrine in the church today. Annihilism is a false doctrine in the church today. Annihilism says that when you die, if you don't go to heaven, if you've not made a vow of devotion to Christ and you're condemned to an eternity in hell, that you're just annihilated. You, you cease to exist. That you just you, you, There's no more consciousness for you. And we don't believe that as we begin to study these texts like this one that we're looking at. Clearly Jesus is saying to us that it is a place of suffering where you're conscious, and we're going to talk about that in a minute, of what's happening to you. Matthew 23, 15. Oh, this is a good one. What sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees? Hypocrites! For you cross land and sea to make one convert, and then you turn that person into twice the child of Gehenna that you yourselves are. Jesus uses this word hell to remind us that there is a judgment about behaviors in this life. He, he uses this idea of hell to say, hey, that there are, there are attitudes, there are, are, are actions that they come out of us because our natural inclination of selfishness and selfishness is an evil thing and all of us have succumbed to temptation. And right here, Jesus uses this strong word to say, hey, there is hellish behavior in this life. If we've made a vow of devotion to Christ, there's still going to be hellish behavior that comes out of our life, but we have the hope of knowing that we're forgiven. Does that make sense? We're, we're forgiven. But if you've never made a vow of devotion to Christ, if you've never made a vow of devotion to Christ, the forgiveness that's freely given to those who have is not for us. It's not for you. It's only for those that cross that threshold of a vow of devotion. I remember when I was really wrestling. I was, I was, I was in the, the, the summer of 1990. It's the summer of 1990, and I was really wrestling. I was, I was 20, 23 years old. Am I going to make this vow of devotion to Christ? God began to ask me this question. Do you believe that Jesus is who he says he is? I didn't want to answer that question because I knew that it wasn't going to stop there. He was going to ask something else of me. And so finally I said, yeah, I do believe that Jesus is who he claims to be. And then I felt like God said, well, don't you think you should at least take this? See, God's tricky. Don't you should think you should at least take the time to read what he had to say? When you're sovereign, you're allowed to be tricky, you know. So I started to open the Bible and read, really, for the first Now, I had grown up in the church, but I never read the Bible for myself, right? You just kind of read it with a closed mind and a closed heart. It's just information. And you begin to read it for the first time because you're hungry for what's in there. You, you see some things differently. And I began to read, and I began to discover there are a whole lot of lists in the Bible. Lots of lists. And the lists that tend to characterize my life tend to always end with the phrase weeping and gnashing of teeth, right? I'm not a rocket scientist, but I could figure some things out here that I was in trouble, Right? 
Those lists are given to you for our good, not to demean us, not to shame us, but to help us understand that we're supposed to see our behavior through the word of God, and some behavior, it's just hellish. And if we never make a vow of devotion to Christ so that we can experience the forgiveness that he gives, we end up in a place that looks a lot like the life that we've been living. If you have never opened up God's word to let it be a microscope to your heart, I would encourage you, just see what it might say to you. Get into the, the, the epistles, the, the, the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then you've got Acts and Romans, and you've got all these letters that Paul wrote, like Corinthians and, and, and Thessalonians. These are all ancient cities, and so they're letters that were written to these cities. And in those where Paul was writing, that there's an index in your Bible. You can figure some of that stuff out. If not, you can email us, and we'd love to help you figure it out. But there's lots of great lists in the Bible. Ask yourself the question, which list describes me? Which list speaks to who I am. That was a huge part of me coming to a place of bending my knee to Christ because I knew that there was a lot in my life that I need to be forgiven from. And I also knew that forgiveness also gave me the hope for change and I'm not the person that I used to be. Hey, we're never going to be perfect, but can we just believe that we're going to be a lot closer than we were before? All right, temptation. Let's do this one. James 3.6. And the tongue is a flame of fire. This is James, not the James the disciple, but this is James the brother of Jesus who wrote this. It is a whole world of wickedness corrupting your entire body. It can set your whole life on fire. For it is set on by fire, by Gehenna itself. This is reminding us that temptation is a real thing. Not every temptation comes from the devil or some evil presence, but sometimes, guess what they do? They do. Sometimes our own humanity gets the best of us, but we believe as a church that there are times when evil that is very real and present in this world will come to you and tempt you. I've got parts of my story for another sermon for another time that, that during my college years and during this time where I was really wrestling with whether or not I was going to make a vow of devotion to Christ, I had distinct experiences where I believe there was an evil presence that was just there, present, just offering me, trying to draw me out of this place of decision. And for some of you, you can relate to that because you've been there yourself. Some of you might be able to relate to it because you're there now. Evil is real, but greater is he who is within me, come on, the Bible says, than he that is in the world. He doesn't talk to us about the reality of evil for us to be afraid. He talks to us about the reality of evil so that we do not have to be naive and that we can understand that when we make a vow of devotion to Christ, there is a strength that comes to us. And, and Paul writes about it. There's no temptation that's taken you, but such as is common to man. But, but we'll, every time with that temptation, make a way to escape. He never allows us to be tempted beyond what we're able to say no to. Only if you have the power of Christ residing in you. All right, let's go to the hell of Hades. The hell of Gehenna. Let's do the hell of Hades. Come on, we're covering some ground tonight. Matthew 16, 18. If we don't get to all of them, we'll blog them, but I, I think we might. We'll see. Matthew 16, 18. Now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the powers of Hades will not conquer it. The power of Hades will not conquer it. I'm going to talk about this one at length because we talked about it at length at our anniversary service at the end of January. We talked about this reality of the spiritual battle that we're a part of, and we're saying to you, you got to get in the fight. And so here we have Jesus talking about this. And what you find is you study all the different references to hell in the Bible, you'll find that it's not always the case, but Hades, Jesus tends to use 
that in referring to a place. When he uses Gehenna and, to, and when Tartarus is used, it tends to, to focus on the idea that that place is a place of suffering. And then Sheol is a combination of those two. So what we find here is that there's an organized force at work in this world trying to thwart what God is trying to accomplish. Again, but we did a whole sermon on that, so you can get that on the podcast. Revelation 6.8. Revelation 6.8. I looked up and saw a horse whose color was pale green. Its rider was named Death, and his companion, your Bible might say the grave, but in the original language it says its companion was Hades. It's named for the place it came from. These two were given authority. This is the key phrase in this text for us tonight. These two were given authority. By who? By God. Given authority over one-fourth of the earth to kill with sword and famine and disease and wild animals. This is big for us, that even hell itself is subject to the authority of God. There is nothing that exists that is beyond the sovereignty of God. There is nothing that exists is beyond the reach of His power. There is nothing that exists that is beyond who He is. Now that creates a mystery for us, doesn't it? Because then we say, well, if God could stop, then why do these bad things happen? It's one of the mysteries that we've just got to be willing to say, as followers of Christ, I don't know the answer to that. But I'm not going to let what I don't know stop me from acting on what I do know because that's one of the greatest traps that the devil ever brings to the mind of a person. I'm not going to let what I don't understand stop me from acting upon what I do understand. And what I know is this, is that God is sovereign and there is nothing that is beyond the reach of his authority and his power. Luke 16, 24. Luke 16, 24. This is going back to the story of Lazarus. Now in 23 is where it says in Hades. I want to jump down to 24 because it talks to us about what hell is. The rich man shouted, Father Abraham, have some pity. Send Lazarus over here to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I am in anguish in these flames. It's a place of consciousness. In case you've just ever had the fleeting thought that, well, maybe, maybe hell just won't be that bad because the sufferings, I'm just not even going to know what's happening to me. And I think Jesus is trying to help us to understand something very serious here. You're going to know what's happening to you. The, the, the suffering that you will experience every moment for all eternity. You know, I've talked a little bit about my, my dad's journey with, he has advanced stages of Parkinson's and he has the one that's accompanied by, it's called Louis Bodies, which is there's a dementia that comes with that. And so for some time now, he doesn't know who any of us are and there's just a frailty to his life. And sometimes we find ourselves having this conversation, is, does he know what's happening to him? You know what I mean? And, and sometimes if, if you're the caregiver of someone who has dementia, whether it's Alzheimer's or something like that, really the suffering is on the caregiver, I think, more than the person because they just don't know. They're... They're not, they're not aware of their condition. Does that make sense? They're, just, they're disconnected from that. And I'm sharing that with you not as a comparison but as an opposite, right? Because the Bible cannot be more clear that it's not going to be that way for us in hell. Even by this story that he gives in many other texts, if you were to do a comprehensive study every time this word hell is used in the Bible, that you are consciously aware of the suffering that you endure. Matthew 25, 46, this is the only one I'm giving you that doesn't use the word Hades specifically, but as you read this chapter, it talks about the outer darkness, it says that place, it talks about the eternal fire which has been prepared, and because all of other Jesus is teaching, when he uses the word Hades, he's referring to a place that I think this is the, the, the proper place for this text in 25:46, and it says, and they, everybody who's not made a vow of devotion to Christ, will go away into eternal punishment. But the righteous will go into eternal life. All right, let's do Tataros. Come on, we're in the home stretch. I hope you get these notes. Spend some time with these, these verses. 
I think whenever the Bible uses a word only one time, that that's intentional by God. We, we believe in the plenary inspiration of the Holy Spirit, which is just a, a fancy way of saying we believe that he inspired even the words that were chosen. Some people believe that the Bible was inspired by way of general thoughts and ideas, and he just left it up to humanity to kind of find their way forward to pick the, the right words. I don't think God just ever leaves it up to the happenstance of our humanity. It's part of the sovereignty of who God is. We're going to be talking about that next week, that it's a kingdom of authority. It's a kingdom of authority. So tonight it's a kingdom of consequence. We believe that even the words that they chose, even though they didn't realize it, which one of the beautiful things about the Bible is that when they're writing these things, they didn't realize that they were going to be chosen to become holy, sacred scriptures. So the Holy Spirit's inspiring them about these things to say and then, and then giving them the words that they're supposed to use, where oftentimes they're just writing a letter to a friend. And here in 2 Peter 2.4, 2 Peter 2.4 says, For God did not spare even the angels whose sin he threw them into to tar us in gloomy pits of darkness where they're being held until the day of judgment. I, I like that he only uses this one this one time that comes out of Greek mythology, and it is the place where evil people are sent to. And I think the Holy Spirit inspired Peter to reach for this word because people of their day, even if they weren't Jewish, were going to understand that this is some serious stuff. I think this is the reason why this one's only given one use, and it's to remind us, it's a sober reminder that hell is a real place. It's not mythology. There's contrast here. You're tracking? It's creative. He uses mythology to tell us what his isn't. It's not pretend. And what he says to you and he says to me is, hey, when the angels rebelled, another sermon for another time, rebelled in heaven, Lucifer, all the angels that lost that battle of rebellion, the coup that they attempted and they were cast out. If, if he's not going to let them slide, why would you think that he's going to let you? Because I might not know all of you, but I know enough about people to know that you have never been an angel, right? <laughs> right? And me neither. Peter's saying, hey, it's real stuff, and it's a real judgment, and there's only two real places that wait for all of us in the end. All right, the hell of Sheol. The hell of Sheol. I'm only going to do two here. There's four. We're not going to talk about Job 7-9. I'm not going to talk about uh, Proverbs 5-5 because we touched on those a little bit. They're, they're a little bit nuanced. Uh, a, a, a place of no return is important because it's not as though that there's going to be any time where God says, okay, you suffered enough. Now you can come to be with us in heaven. And then Proverbs 5-5 is a big one. We talked about behavior, but there's, uh, Proverbs 5-5 goes a little bit farther. You know, if you never make a vow of devotion to Christ, the smallest of sin of your life is enough to keep you out of heaven. That's what we believe. All of us are desperate for the forgiveness that only Christ could give. But make no mistake that there are things that the Bible talks about that causes God to just be disgusted. It's important for us to know what those things are. You know, there's some things in our life that if we struggle with them, there, there might be, that we, are, we can take a little bit of time working this thing out. You with me? There's other things where God says, you gotta, you gotta stop doing that tomorrow. You tracking with me? There, any sin can keep you out of heaven some, because of the destruction it brings to you and the destruction it brings to the world, there is a sense of urgency for you to be able to leave those things behind. All right, I said I wasn't going to talk about it, but I couldn't help it. All right. Psalm 5-5. Five, 6-5. Five, five. Psalm 6-5. For the dead, they do not remember you. Who can praise you from Sheol? I like this one. There's layers of truth to verses in the Bible. When you study this psalm, if you, if you take the time to read it, you'll realize what, what, what David is doing, he's peeing in the trash can a little bit here. 
He's, he's trying to talk God into something. And what he's saying is, because he's done some bad things. If, if you just kill me, God, I'm not going to be able to worship you anymore. And I, you know, I know that you like the way that I worship you, right? <laughs> right? I am David, right? I mean, the worship that's, that of our church, it's called Davidic worship. It's expressive. It's prophetic. It's impassioned. There's, there's a biblical reason. It's another sermon for another time. There's a reason we worship the way we do. There's lots of ways. This is Davidic worship. This is the worship that's born out of the Psalms. David's saying, if you want more of that for me, God, how about you keep me here a little bit longer? But I think there's something else. Because, again, let's remember that, that, that they didn't know that what they were writing was going to be used for Scripture. And, and I think the Holy Spirit takes advantage even of their intentions that, that might not be good and noble and uses them, come on, for the good of all of humanity. And what I think the Holy Spirit was using David's moment of manipulation for us to teach us something about what hell is not. And hell is a place where there is no praise. And you think about what we experienced together tonight as we worshiped together. God wants us to understand you will never taste of that ever again. We're finishing with this one in Jonah 2.2. Because if you think that one is weighty, listen to what Jonah says. And he said, I called out of my distress. This means emotional bankruptcy. To the Lord, and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol, and you heard my voice. You and I were created by God for lots of reasons, but one was just so that we could know the joy of his love, because that's the kind of God that he is. He didn't create us because he's egotistical and he needs us to do things for him. He's the perfect loving father. And and one of the reasons why he created us is because he just celebrates doing indescribably wonderful things. And one of the indescribably wonderful things that he wants you and I to discover is just what it feels like to be loved by him. That's why the great Levitical blessing, it says, may the Lord bless you and keep you. And may he make his face to shine upon you, which right there it means that he would smile, that he would lift up his countenance, right? That you would experience what it's like for God to smile over your life. There's no feeling on this earth that compares. And as this book is being written for us, it's being written for lots of reasons, but one is for us to know that we will never see and feel his love forever. It's weighty, isn't it? Not because he wants us to run from something, but because he wants us to run to someone. But he doesn't want us to go through this life naive. He wants us to understand if we don't run to Christ, it is a kingdom of consequence. And one of those consequences, it's called hell, and it lasts forever. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. Romans 2.2 says this, and we know that God in his justice will punish anyone who does such things. It's an important verse for me because maybe you're here tonight and you're of the mindset, well, if if this is who God is, I don't want to have anything to do with him. And what I would say to you, hell is a high price to to pay for protest. It's a high price to pay for protest. 
at some point you've got to come to a place where you either embrace the sovereignty of God or you don't. And if you've got some questions about the way he is, then you get to take that up with him. How about an eternity with him asking him the questions that I think he's going to allow us to ask? But don't not be there to find out the answers that you desperately seek. I got that other question up here good enough because my, my five new favorite numbers this week are 90087. It's the parts number for this little baby right here from AutoZone. Because when we came out Wednesday night from Ethan's basketball game, which, by the way, they were, got destroyed, the team they were playing, I think some of them had kids waiting for them in the stands after the game, right? It's literally, the, the players are supposed to be evenly distributed amongst all the team. This lady, she had about 20 different players, and half of them, I'm quite certain, are going to be in the NBA draft this year. And uh, they had a, a play where they ran an alley-oop. Come on, they're nine, right? So we're coming out of, the, out of the gym and making our way back to the car, and, we're, and Ethan and I are, are, are driving home, and I look over at my side mirror, and I realize, well, I can't see out of my side mirror, right? It was like it was all glossed over or something. And Ethan and I were saying, what is that on our mirror? Is it like iced over? It wasn't ice. Really. And I was like, huh, epiphany, right? The glass is falling out. So Ethan rolls his window, and sure enough, he's just pushing it, and, and there's the, the, the glass is not there anymore. So I'm thinking to myself, how expensive could that be, right? You know, it's only this big. So I call the next day, $150. That's how expensive the glass in your side mirror, right? It's crazy, isn't it? $150. So I'm not spending $150, right? I'm going to steal a makeup mirror or something out of Vanessa's bag or something and Gorilla Glue that bad boy on there, right? So then I thought to myself, well, I bet they sell some things in the auto parts store that, you know, might take the place of $11.99 right here. 90087. It's not for my car, but sometimes good enough is good enough. Can I just say that? If you stare at it for too long, you throw up because it will create motion sickness because it's a little bit blurry. It's like the fun house at the state fair. The cars behind me all have a big head, but I can see. It's safe to change lanes. But I'm saying $11.99 versus $150. Sometimes good enough is good enough. And this is good enough. I'm just saying, if your mirror's gone, it's good enough. You know who's never said good enough is good enough, ever? The creator of the universe. Because good enough for him is never good enough. Because he's perfect. He's perfect. If you're here tonight and you're saying, I'm going to get to heaven because I'm good enough. God says you're not. There's only one person who's ever been good enough, and it's my son. And that's why I sent him. Because he was perfect. That's why he could pay the price for you and for me. You and I will never, ever be good enough. We are desperate for the death that Jesus died for us 2,000 years ago. For so many reasons, I hope if you call this your church home that you're going to go on this journey with us. We're going to be having that conversation as long as we have breath. But the one that we're focusing in on tonight, the one that we're dialing in on tonight, is it all about heaven and hell? And in this moment, yes, it is. Where are you headed after you breathe your last. And if you're not sure, then come on, let's take care of business together tonight. Not to run from something, but to run to someone. Stand with me as we worship. There's going to be people that are on either side that are here to pray with you. If you look into the story of your life and you're not sure what's waiting for you, then come on, they are here to pray. That you can make, tonight the night, that you make a vow of devotion to Christ and say all of those things that we just talked about, I want to know what they are, but not because that's where I'm headed, but because 
I want to be able to talk to other people honestly about the weightiness of this decision that you and I are going to make for Christ. Come on, let's worship together. Give me faith to trust what you say.